Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name is Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make 12-tone, and today I wanted to talk about music schools. If I understand correctly, you did not go to music school, is that right? I did not go to music school, otherwise we would have been classmates, because you <laughs> did go to music school, right? I, I did, yeah. Do you want to, I think, to start, do you want to talk about sort of what path you did take? Yeah, so I mean, I played a lot of music in high school. That's where a lot of my kind of theory education comes from. I took a lot of music classes, and then I was also in jazz band and concert band, and I was in that kind of stuff pretty much throughout my high school experiences. And then in university, I went to journalism school, J school as those in the know call it. <laughs> yeah, so I went to journalism school, but then on the music front, I studied music a couple ways during my undergrad. I took a musicology course or two. The one I remember, I think I took one or two, but the one that sticks out to me was one called A History of Popular Music. That was kind of a musicological look at mostly kind of post-World War II music. And that gave me a lot of insight and a lot of basis for this stuff. And then the other thing that I did and where I would say most of my experience kind of talking about music came from was actually from the journalism side, doing arts reporting. So like going to events, interviewing bands, doing album reviews, writing for the school paper, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I consider it, it was obviously integral to my journalistic education. I also consider it very influential on my musical education. And I still kind of the way that I approached an album review for the school paper or stuff like that, a lot of those skills are skills that I still use when I'm evaluating and talking about music. I am curious, just since you mentioned you studied music and you've been doing music in high school, was like formal music school something you considered and decided not to do? Was that never on the table or what, what was the deal with that? Yeah, I was never really that interested in it. I mean, I've always really liked writing and I've always kind of wanted to be a writer or a journalist. So my goal going into university was to become a music journalist. So the performance thing, I mean, I played a fair amount in high school and I also had a band and stuff, but I was never very good at theory or very interested <laughs> in theory. Rude. <laughs> I mean, it's it's personal <laughs> <No>. interest. <laughs> the concept of kind of going to a formal education for music, that didn't really appeal to me because of the amount of theory that I would have needed to know. And I was fine at performing, like I could play some jazz stuff and I was a perfectly decent bassist for my rock band, but bass would have been the instrument that I went for if I went for anything. But the idea of kind of sitting down and developing a formal repertoire and auditioning and stuff like that really kind of scared me as a high schooler. That's, I think, one of the reasons I really wanted to like talk to you about this is I think one of the most popular topics of conversation among people like me who went to music school is music school, right? We talk a lot about like, was it worth it? Would we do it again? What would we change? Would we recommend it to someone else? What are the pros and cons? And I think a perspective that often gets left out of that discussion is like, if not music school, if that's not appealing or whatever, then what, right? Like, what are the yeah. other options? What are the other paths? And especially like paths that aren't just like start a band and hope that band gets famous. That works for some people. Yeah, a very slim, slim amount of people that works for. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if, if you want to have a career in music, there's a lot of ways to do it that aren't music school. And I think that like so much of the conversation sort of ends at like, well, maybe music school, maybe not. Obviously, I, I don't think your path is necessarily going to represent the only other way to do this. But I, like, I think it's because obviously music is such an important part of your life. I assume you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I hate it. Not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> music terrible uh, yeah. but like 
it's just clearly a big thing in your life and clearly a big thing in your career. And so it, I think it's it's really interesting to see how else you can get there beyond getting a bachelor's in music and then getting a master's in music and so on. I think we have very narrow visions of what being in music as a career means because, I mean... Being in music, it can obviously mean being a performer. It can mean doing what we do. It can mean being Adam and doing both. Um, <laughs> it can mean a lot of the kind of that stuff. But then it could also be like a career in music can also mean music journalism. It can mean being a music historian. There's a lot of like great music historians and that's a cool job in music. It could mean being a band's publicist working on the industry from the kind of industry side of things you're still working in the music industry and music is still an integral part of your job it could also mean being a radio host you know that i think a lot of the time i think we look at music school and we look at formal training and we look at like the ways to have a, a career in music are either formal training and go be like a formal musician or like you said, start a band in your garage and get big. But the reality is music is, it's like any field, right? It's so diverse and there's so many jobs and there's a lot of jobs in music that people really don't think about, but that are essential to the whole music ecosystem. Yeah, no, it's, it's a whole industry and industries need all sorts of people doing all sorts of things. And also it's a whole academic field. It's arguably multiple academic fields, honestly, but like there's a lot that goes into doing music and a lot of ways to do music and like you said i think we sort of behooves us to look past like oh either you're in a band or you're a professor of music and those are the options you're saying that you and a lot of music school people talk about your music school and whether it was worth it and things like that and i mean obviously given what you do i'm pretty sure you got <laughs> something out of your education <laughs> but generally what are your kind of thoughts on your experience and do you want to kind of tell us what your experience with music school was I will say, honestly, like a lot of what I do these days is stuff that I learned after I left music school. Like most of the work that I do is founded on either independent research or conversations with other theorists outside of like the confines of getting an actual degree. I have two experience at like two different musical institutions. When I was a teenager, I did some summer programs at Berkeley, the one in Boston, not UC Berkeley, that my dad actually went to UC Berkeley and that caused some confusion in conversations but i did some summer programs there and then i was considering applying there i actually talked about this in a video i published recently as of this recording but it'll be a couple months ago as of when this gets released but i applied there once and didn't get accepted because i wasn't very good and then the second time i was looking to apply and i talked to some of my like teachers at the program and one of them especially sort of like talked me out of it and was just like this is not an environment that fits what you're trying to do because at the time i was trying to be a metal singer and that's not really berkeley's thing and he was like this i don't think is going to be a good fit for you you're going to have to do a lot of stuff you're not going to enjoy and you would be better off looking somewhere else and so i did and i wound up at this for-profit university in los angeles that focused on rock and I don't tend to like to mention the name because it's a for-profit university yeah. and I'm not going to give them free advertising. And I will say just to clear this up because I got this when I said the same thing in the video I made. Some people were like, well, if you're not going to name your for-profit alma mater, you shouldn't have mentioned Berkeley either. So just to be clear, Berkeley is not a for-profit university. Berkeley is a private university, which is why it's expensive. But technically, they're a nonprofit, which means at least nominally the money they make has to go back into the education, whereas a for-profit university doesn't work like that. They don't have any sort of mandate legally to spend the money you pay them to teach you stuff. And that's 
not great. America. Yeah, America is a nightmare. It's always weird to me to learn how different education systems are in places that aren't the United States, honestly. Yeah. This is one of those things like, it's not good, but it's like in my head that like for-profit universities are just a thing. And if you go to like most other places, they're like, that's terrible. Like, why would you have that? But you know, we do. But anyway, I actually started, like I said, my plan was to be a metal singer. And so I was like, I'm just going to do this associate's degree so I can meet people, make connections, start a band. And then I decided, you know, I starting a band sounds awful, actually. I really don't want to do that. <laughs> starting a band is almost as awful as being <laughs> in a band. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Especially as the vocalist, like everyone expects you to be in charge of everything. And I was just like, I don't want to organize people. I hate organizing people. I'm so bad at it. <laughs> like this works like you and I because like you're just as punctual as I am but like and also like there's organizing people and then there's organizing musicians yeah that's also true this is another thing that musicians love talking about is how much working with musicians sucks <laughs> actually had a very similar conversation with Mike Rignetta once. But yeah, so I, I decided I was going to be a teacher and I went to get a bachelor's. And that's, I think, sort of the highest level of like degree that I have is a bachelor's of music. The thing about music school in terms of theory is that what it gives you is sort of a foundation to work from. But like, again, a lot of the stuff that I wound up doing later on in life and later on in my work on the channel comes from taking that foundation and extending it and looking for things that exist outside of that and other approaches. But I think there's this thing that I've often used as an analogy. Like I used to, one of the things I did right out of college was I taught vocal and piano lessons to kids. And that was my job. And one thing that I've always said is like, when I worked with kids to teach vocals, at least with so set aside piano, when I taught kids vocals, the most important thing I taught them was not like a specific practice scale or like a specific technique of how to use open your throat or whatever. Like the thing that I taught them that mattered the most was the idea that the melody was more important than the lyrics, mm. because that's how a professional vocalist thinks, right? Like, I had so many times where like I would show up to a lesson and the student would be like, oh, Corey, I learned this new song. And I was like, great, show me. And they would sing it and they know all of the words, but they'd just be singing whatever melody they happened to feel like. It like, <laughs> wasn't necessarily in the key. It probably wasn't moving much. It didn't have the right contour. It was just like, it was just whatever notes, you know? And that's, you know, that's not a judgment. They're like, you know, eight or nine or 10. Well, like, they're not professional vocalists. Yeah. I don't expect, but like, I had to sort of walk them through like, okay, well, let's take the lyrics you know and then actually learn how to sing the song because that's how a vocalist thinks and similarly i think what i got out of my theory lessons and what i got out of like music school in general in part was an understanding of how a professional theorist or how a professional musician thinks about their work i think actually in a very similar way from my side of things I kind of got a lot of those foundations actually from I minored in English and in English literature. And what that taught me a lot of the, what I learned there, and this is what I try to impart on people and I hope my channel teaches people is how to read a text. And it doesn't matter what that text is. That text can be a novel, but it can also be a song. It can be a painting. It can be a movie. And if it's a song, it's not even necessarily just looking at the lyrics. It's just looking at this artistic work and kind of placing it within a context, placing it within a movement, understanding what's going on to try to kind of... And I don't think that you can ever definitively read an artist's intention or something into it, but I think that you can read intentionality, you can find some of that, or you can find meaning separate from that intentionality. That's something that I credit English literature a lot for teaching me is, okay, here is an artistic work, 
How do we not just enjoy this artistic work? How do we extract meaning from this artistic work? Yeah, and I add also to that list, like in addition to placing it in a context, also just placing it in an experience as well. Yes. And just thinking about putting words and thoughts and structures to how you feel about a work in a way that is more rigorous than like, I like it, I don't like it. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, here's how I would communicate this in a way that you could understand even if you didn't relate to. It sounds kind of dumb, but like how to realize why you like something. It's an underrated kind of skill when it comes to art. And I think especially with music, because like when you're talking about a movie or something like that, you can kind of be like, I liked it because I thought the character had a compelling arc or something like that. But I think a lot of people don't really have the vocabulary to fully understand why they like music other than, oh, it's catchy or, oh, it makes me feel good. And I think it's interesting because I think it's not that there's one vocabulary for that. I think you and I are living examples of two different vocabularies that you can use to describe what you're appreciating about music or why a piece of music is resonating with you. Yeah. And that's, I think, a thing that you really get to bring this back to music school a bit. You really get out of ensemble classes because it's sort of in my bachelor program, like in the the associates as well, sort of, but especially in the bachelor program, we had these classes where just like a bunch of students would get together and we'd be assigned a song, we'd all come together and we'd perform it. And the way it worked in the bachelor program, at least, was that there was just one teacher for the whole class. We'd have this band, it'd be, you know, one of each instrument and as five main instruments that this program had, those vocals, guitar, bass, keyboard and drums. And sometimes we'd have two guitarists if the song needed two guitarists. But like, you know, we'd all come together and play this song together. And then we'd all sit there and listen to the feedback that each person got. And so we got to sort of like hear how does someone who is thinking about the entire arrangement talk to a drummer, right? Yeah. Like how how do they think about what the bassist is doing and how do they instruct that bassist to do it better? And so you sort of get a sense of how to think about the instruments that aren't your own. That's really cool. Like, and also we get a lot of that from arranging class as well, right? Like where we're sitting down and writing these things. But like, for me, honestly, like the big part of it, especially because arranging class, we were sort of doing more, you know, on the like the jazz and classical side of things. Although the teacher was actually a big rock guy, but like the curriculum was still yeah. pretty heavily jazzy. But in like the ensembles and whatever, like we did rock songs, we did jazz songs, we did a bunch of stuff in like different styles and you sort of get to hear what it takes to be a particular instrumentalist in that style. That's really cool. That makes a lot of sense. And it actually kind of reminds me, especially when you're talking about the ensemble, it kind of reminds me of right now I'm actually taking creative writing course and a big part of it is workshopping. And it's just sitting down and getting feedback from people about your work and also like listening for things or reading for things in other people's work and when you do that you kind of learn and it feeds back into your own work a little I think another thing that helped me a lot that also you made me think of is in high school I remember we did a lot of listening classes in high school with my high school music teacher where we would all just like sit down and he would play us like a Mozart piece or a Miles Davis piece or whatever and then just ask people what they thought about it. And I think that listening to music is a skill. Consuming any media is a skill. The more that you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And it feels weird to say that you can be better or worse 
at like listening to music and i don't necessarily mean this in a like objective yeah not not like judgmental or anything yeah exactly the more you listen to music the more you'll be able to pick things out of music and this is especially true kind of within a given genre if you've listened to a lot of metal music you can probably pick out a metal bassline like that like without really thinking about it when you listen to a metal song but if you're not familiar with metal music and you go down and someone's like tell me what's happening with that bass line you can kind of be like ah oh, i don't know there's a lot of loud <laughs> stuff coming at me <laughs> god that reminds me um slightly off topic although slightly related as well we had a similar thing in sort of a more active version in at least the associates program where in our vocal performance classes we would do a performance and then the teacher would ask before giving any of her own feedback, she would like pick out a couple random people in the class and be like, what did you think? And that, again, gets you sort of thinking about like not just like your own performance, but thinking about other people's as well and thinking about what you appreciated or what you didn't appreciate, what you would do differently and getting those gears. And that, you know, they weren't always great answers. People would, would often not say much. But like the anecdote that this reminded me of was um, a friend and I, we did a Lamb of God song. I forget which one. And we did it as like a duet. And like the teacher comes up uh, after the thing and just like points to like some random kid in the classes. just like, so what do you think? And their response was just like, I was scared. It's like, oh, <laughs> whoops. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's Lamb of God. That's kind of what you're going for. But <laughs> And that's exactly it. And I do think something that music school one way or another can help you with is it forces you to listen to music that you might not listen to otherwise. And I yeah. think that makes you both a better musician and better able to appreciate music. Like whether you like jazz or not, you will listen to a lot of jazz if you go to music school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, looking back, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't take my jazz vocals class more seriously. And not because I like care that much about jazz or spend that much time listening to jazz but again i think that there's a lot of value in engaging with music that isn't the music that you do because you never know what you're going to find and so looking back i took that class just seriously enough to pass it and like if you went and asked my teachers like they would probably tell you like i wasn't that good a student in that class i did enough to pass but I, I didn't try and i it was also it was really far out of my comfort zone so i was i struggled with it anyway and i would have struggled no matter what but i also didn't care as much as maybe I could have. It was a great class and it was great teachers. And so looking back, yeah, I, if you are going to music school, if you're listening to this, try to take the classes seriously that are about music other than the kind you like. Like that would be one of many pieces of advice I would have. I think something that always kind of shocking to me, or I guess not shocking, but it's always kind of fun to notice is very often when you like read interviews by artists who have like made it like big artists and they talk about their influences their influences are never just in the genre they play yeah. people will always be like i don't know they'll be the front man of some metal band and they'll be like stevie wonder's songs in the key of life is one of my favorite albums and things like <laughs> that and with this kind of genre cross-pollination you pick things up even just subconsciously and the idea of kind of ignoring things outside of the genre that you like. I mean, if all that you're doing 
is just you just want to like get home crack a beer and turn on the radio that's great listen to the stuff that makes you happy but if you do want to improve your critical thinking skills with music if you want to improve your performance skills if you want to work in the music industry in any capacity it's really important to be willing to go outside of your comfort zone that's something i learned a lot of writing for my school paper doing album reviews because i would basically just like there were a lot of people that would kind of pick and choose albums they want and dip for them and stuff like that and i would just take anything that my editor threw at me i was like give me something to review and i will learn to listen to this and learn to say something about it because it's the job of a music journalist to be able to review an album whether it was like at the time i didn't really listen to much hip-hop but i i remember reviewing jay-z's magna carta holy grail it's probably not a good review because i knew nothing about (laughs) hip-hop but it made me listen to that album and that was part of my path to listening to more hip-hop and i absolutely love hip-hop now yeah and i mean this is Maybe getting a little bit off topic, but I think one important point with that to go back to some stuff we've talked about before is that music is always changing. And so if you want to be a part of the music industry going forward, if you want to be a part of its future, then you can't necessarily just stake one line through its past, right? Yes. You can't just be like, okay, well, this is the set of things I like, and this is what I am going to engage with. Because I mean, if if nothing else, like, that may not be a job five years from now. You yeah. may have to adapt. Like rock music has changed a lot since, you know, the days of Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley. Like those are not the rock musicians that are thriving today. Wait, there's rock musicians thriving today? Yeah, they're called the <laughs> Foo Fighters. <laughs> there's a lot of rock musicians who are working today at very high levels. They're just, again, yes. their music has evolved. It's not what Noah and I grew up thinking of as rock. We grew up thinking Limp Biscuit was rock, so... Yeah, but Limp Biscuit is rock, so... <laughs> but um, I don't think music school is the only place to get it, and I didn't go to music school, and clearly I got it. But I think that there is something about any kind of educational path that will expose you to more music and push you outside of your artistic comfort zones. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of... That's the thing comes to a point that I was going to bring up, which is that, like, one of the big things about music school is the community. Like, Mm -hmm. more than the classes, it's the people you're surrounded with. And I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I'll get into more of them later. But relevant to this point is that, like, like a lot of my closest friends were people who regularly did the rock and metal stuff with me, right? Especially in the Associates program. In the Bachelor program, we had such small classes that we mostly just knew everyone on our level. Yeah. But, like, even back in the Associates, like, some of my friends were people who would do, like, the R&B stuff. People who did hip-hop. People who did, like, all sorts of other styles as well. And people who did classic rock and there wasn't a lot of people I hung out with who did a lot of jazz that wasn't as much the vibe of the school they had jazz stuff but that wasn't the focus but like I still like I spent a lot of time hanging out with people who were not doing the sorts of music I wanted to do and just sort of talking shop with them and not not necessarily like actively like I wasn't like interviewing them for their thoughts on music or anything but just like by socializing by having this environment you sort of get a read on how other people who listen to other styles and engage with other musical cultures think about the work that they enjoy. Similar to that, but more broadly, just like being in a space where everyone wants to talk about music as much as you do. Everyone is as passionate about music as you are. Everyone thinks about music as much as you do. Everyone cares about it as much as you do. That's something that I've had a lot of trouble 
finding anywhere else. And I think that sort of these days, I tend to have that more with online video, right? Like when we go to like VidCon or whatever. Yeah. Like I can surround myself with people and I have online communities who like do these sorts of things. But like the sense of just like showing up and the people I like hang out with and the people I just ha- go out to lunch with because they happen to be there and we both like are hungry, like we'll just sit down and just offhand start talking about music. That's something that's I have found very difficult to replicate. And I've found it a couple times, mostly at like academic music conferences. But it's just it's a very it's a very nurturing and like, yeah, powerful environment for someone who wants to do music to be in that sort of space. And obviously, this isn't the only sort of space where that happens. Like you you have like your local scenes and whatever. And like, I don't want to like discredit any of that. But I think the thing with music school is that it is very much just it's where you are the whole day, right? Like you don't have a day job or anything. It is some people did. Some people definitely were working while they were there. But you like your main thing is just being in this space. I think the other thing, too, that you probably have there that I've never really and I've never really been in a scene like that other than online, like online, you can find communities, but there's something different about hanging out with people in real life. Yeah. But I think there's also different ways of talking about music. And I imagine in music school, you have more people kind of willing to talk about music on a conceptual level, not just on a, oh, I listened to this album and I liked it. Oh, have you ever seen this band live? Not that there's anything wrong with those conversations, but the kind of stuff that we are interested in doing on Ghost Notes, the kind of looking at these broad conceptual things and talking about music as a concept and not just as individual songs or albums or artists or whatever. So sort of that may be more true at other schools. For me, that wasn't super the case because, again, the the program I was in was very performance focused. Yeah. And so mostly what we talked about was music as an action, right? Mm. Like not so much music as an interest or music as a concept, but music as a thing we did. And that was sort of the main way that we tended to frame it obviously you know we we had other discussions but i don't think we were sitting around having discussions like you know you and i had about like what is music right that's a couple levels of abstraction removed from most of my experience at music school at least i also don't know how many people are having those conversations when you're in your undergrad (laughs) oh yeah no that's yeah i wasn't thinking about music on that much of a conceptual level when i was in my early 20s no i think that's a thing that sort of comes naturally from the sorts of exposure you can get at music school right like i think looking back in the bachelor program we had a one quarter class called world music which i know i know (laughs) i'm sure you're excited to hear that but like and you know it's not like it was a great class again it was one quarter we spent like a week each on like eight different like cultures and then there was an introductory week and then there was like a midterm and that was roughly the class but it's still just like that's why i know about gamelan music that's why i know about rogs that's why i know about like arabic microtonal stuff like that's why i know all of these ideas sort of even that like minimal basic exposure pushes you and challenges you on ideas about what music is allowed to be in ways that if you're just sort of listening to bands that your friends recommend and you know buying albums at like i was gonna say tower records tower records hasn't existed in a long time but it's still like in my head as the place you buy cds yeah Corey, there is no place where you buy cds (laughs) there's not even a place where you buy music digitally you just stream it all on spotify But yeah, back in the day, there was a thing called Tower Records. Uh, but no, like it's if you're just like picking up whatever's popular and whatever your friends are into, you don't necessarily get exposed to these ideas unless you have very cool friends. And so 
again, as always, I'm not saying that music school is the only place this can happen, but like it is an environment that sort of does at least sort of force you to engage. And especially I think if you go to like higher level music theory, like again, I only did a bachelor's and I think I probably would have got more of this, if you'll pardon the phrase world music stuff, if I had kept going and gotten a master's. But like it's still just like opening that door is really valuable, even if you're not really being pushed through it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I never really had those kinds of experiences. And what I did have was like, I mean, doing journalism, I was surrounded by people who were obsessed with news. And doing English, I was surrounded by people who were obsessed with books. And I mean, that's great. And that's really fun, too. I loved having lots of people to talk books with. Yeah, books are great. I definitely would have loved to be a part of a community that's a lot more kind of music driven in person, because I think music communities are pretty easy to find online. And most of my music community stuff has been online, but online communities are also their own weird thing. And music communities online especially can be very judgmental and very... I mean, they can be toxic places. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Oh, for sure. They can be good, but they can also be very, very bad. Yeah. But I think there's just a fundamental difference sharing a space with someone. And I think that that main difference is just accidental interaction, right? Like, yeah, spontaneous interaction. Anytime that I go to my like music forums, I'm looking to do music, looking to talk about music. I have an opinion to express or I'm looking to react to someone's opinion. I'm there for a purpose. I've made a decision. Whereas, you know, if you're just like at a school, if you're there to do classes, if you're there for whatever, and you just happen to see like a, a dude you saw at the you know, hard rock LPW three weeks ago and talk to and then you just sort of like say hi in the hallway and then you wind up like talking and it turns out they like all the same bands you like. And then it's just like, oh, well, maybe we should like hang out more and you sort of build those things in a way that doesn't really happen online. Yeah. And like having that physical space, the nature of at least like spoken conversation is very different from the nature of typed conversation. Because type conversation, you're expressing complete thoughts, right? Yeah. You can just sort of do like one sentence at a time. But like a lot of times, like if I'm like on a message board or whatever, I'll write out like three paragraphs. And, you know, if we're having a conversation, you're free to interrupt me anywhere in those three paragraphs if you want to take the conversation in a different direction. And so it's just it's a different experience. It's less talking with you and more talking at each other. Yeah. Which isn't bad. There's still value in that. This is not like everyone's texting. Nobody's communicating situation. This is just kids these days don't even know what Tower Records is. (laughs) So something on the music school front that I wanted to talk about is kind of the idea that music school qualifies you to talk about music in a certain way. The idea that a formal training makes you more able to quote unquote properly appreciate music or things like that. We'll call this the Ben Shapiro's dad paradigm. Which I mean, it clearly does. That's why I'm the only music expert here. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's something that I'm really interested in because I do think there's a lot of value to formal education. I got a lot out of my school and I think a lot of people have. But I also think that especially something like music, there are so many different ways to engage with music, so many different ways to appreciate it. Obviously, you can be qualified to talk about something on a certain front. Like you are way more qualified to talk about 12 tone (laughs) like harmonizations and like, you know, you're way more qualified to talk about specific theory stuff than I am. And I'm probably more qualified to talk about, I don't know, the history of rock and roll than you are. Oh, absolutely. 
absolutely. Hands down, you are way more qualified yeah. than me. I think. But I don't think that makes either of us qualified to talk about one thing or another or disqualified from talking about something or another. I think often, especially when it comes to theory, there's this kind of STEM approach to music yes. where it's like, oh, well, it's just math. This is just right or wrong. And there is a right way to analyze a song. But I mean, as you show all the time in your videos and stuff like that, like even within the supposed objective framework of a song, I mean, you recently had a video where you were talking about like Hallelujah, right? And yeah. people don't really know what key it, it's in. <laughs> you can take this song and you can make a compelling argument that it's in a number of different keys, right? Yeah. Well, two or arguably three, but yeah, <laughs> two is a number. I mean, you could make a compelling argument for all sorts of keys. It just, it might be a lot harder. Yeah. If you wanted to argue B flat, please send me that argument. <laughs> uh, the original Leonard Cohen recording. If you can argue that that's in B flat, I would love to see it. I think there's this kind of deferral to music theory a lot of the time yeah. as a, a kind of default way to analyze music or as a like good or better way to analyze music. And I think music theory can provide a lot of insight on music and is really phenomenal at that. I have no issues with Vox. They were like very yeah. inspirational to me as a channel and like Estelle's earworm stuff is incredible like huge huge fan but there's definitely this kind of temptation towards Vox style explanation of music saying this music is good because it does a music theory yeah, I would say also just to add to that, that there's a tendency to appeal to a very specific kind of music theory, right? Like I think music theory as a discipline is a lot more diverse and complicated than people tend to think it is. And part of that is music theorists fault because we don't necessarily do all the kinds of theory we could or we don't like promote people who are doing it. But like, I think a lot of music theory isn't really in that vein, it, but it's just like, that's the branding and that's a valid branding. I'm not saying we haven't earned it, but like, again, this sort of comes back, we were talking in an earlier episode about Babbitt and that sort of like mid-century like push towards making music theory something that we could just do math to. Yeah. And the way that that fell apart because it was a bad idea. But like, that's, I think, still has a lot of weight in the cultural zeitgeist as sort of what music theory is because partly because that's what we teach music theory as to undergrads so i'm not saying you're wrong in any way i just like yeah need to defend my discipline need to defend my field oh absolutely <laughs> i think music theory is a rich and incredible discipline and field and i mean i i have done in the past theoretical analysis and i probably might in the future someday too but i think music analysis is kind of lacking because we tend to think okay so music analysis is either like this is a like hyper simplification it seems like there's kind of this tend towards music analysis is either a theory analysis that is objectively looking at music and telling us why it's good or why it's bad or b music reviews that are somebody who is qualified subjectively looking at music and telling us why it is good and why it is bad. But in reality, the music analysis that I'm much more interested in is everything in between those, you know? Completely, yeah. Everything saying, what's going on here culturally? What's going on here harmonically? What's going on here where there's room for debate and discussion? And why is it that this thing appeals to me and doesn't appeal to you? And that might be a theoretical question. It might be a cultural question. It might be both combined. It's probably both combined. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. With music 
music school and people kind of like holding it up on this pedestal. People use it to create this appeal to authority, this appeal to, well, I've studied theory, so I can tell you this. And I just kind of often reject that notion. There are things that studying theory makes you more qualified to talk about, but it does not make you more qualified to talk broadly about music than any other field of study. Yeah, so there's definitely, I think, a risk in the way music school is currently structured, especially in possibly just music school as an abstract concept. I'm not as convinced of that, but definitely in the way that it's currently run in a lot of places of sort of pushing homogeneity and crafting this idea that music works a specific way. And that's partly like just the way that like education works is if you're not careful, you're just you have students who are almost definitionally less qualified sitting there listening to someone, the teacher who is definitionally more qualified by the metrics we're using to establish this hierarchy. And they are there to receive wisdom. And so that puts this idea that the way the teacher is framing it is in some way true yes and in some way it is true but i mean sort of like objectively true like this is the answer this is how this works it's like a biology teacher teaching like cellular mitosis or something like that like there's this vision of that but the reality is that's not what music is and music is never going to be that way yeah no like if i say like the leading tone pulls to the root that sort of has similar weight to like you know a physics teacher being like uh, gravity drops off relative to the radius cubed i believe no one get mad at me if that's wrong i think it's the radius cubed you hear that and like oh well the leading tone goes to the tonic and that's like okay but like it also doesn't necessarily it can do lots of things and like you have to be really really careful to communicate that in a lot of music school or again i can't speak to music schools i didn't go to but i both at berkeley and at my actual alma mater there was a lot of that and i think that that's fairly common in especially the way that we talk about it in the beginning because i think there's a sort of model that you often see in a lot of educational platforms and a lot of the way that we do pedagogy which is god i shouldn't use words like pedagogy should i uh pedagogy is the theory of teaching but anyway the way that we do teaching is to sort of start with like here's the system and then like the simple basic system this is how it works because that's the easiest thing to access and then we sort of from there complicated and we add more things like well okay but in this situation it's this but in this situation it's this but there's still sort of starts with this basic like this is the system this is how it works and then as you go you start to get a better sense of what it is but still has this fundamental idea that there is a system at the bottom it's tough because there are things and there are aspects of this teaching that are pretty immutable. You know, like, yeah. you draw a staff, you stick a treble clef on it, every good boy deserves fudge. Like, that's going to be what it's going to be. And unless you get, like, really into, like, micro tunings and into really weird stuff, you know if you play the white note before two blacks on a piano, that's a C. Yeah. There is this very fundamental stuff, and I think that's important to learn and really helps create the foundation for all of this thought. But I think it's the problem is kind of extrapolating these fundamental things. And like you were talking about with Babbitt, kind of extrapolating these fundamental things that are true because they were created to describe something. We've decided they were true. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Is taking that and extracting that to try to find some objective truth or objective value when in reality, like you can't find objective value if you're working within a system that is subjective and it might not feel like it but at the end of the day it is completely subjective that we decide to say a is 440 hertz or whatever or mega yeah, yeah you know yeah 
No, 440 hertz. That's right. Yeah. At the end of the day, placing 440 hertz as a, which is kind of, that's a fundamental, arbitrary, subjective thing. It's a decision. That we can grow all of these things from. And there's a lot of value in understanding that. But I think the problem is when people look at music school and say that it's teaching absolute, pure, untouchable truths in that way. That comes, I think, to the problem or the difference between sort of practical education and theoretical education, right? Because like, again, I was doing a performance degree. So if you're going to music school to learn to be a rock guitarist, there are certain things you should know how to do, right? Yes. If you don't know how to play the blues scale, you're probably going to have a bad time, a difficult time being a successful rock guitarist. And there are a lot of cultural reasons for that. There's some theoretical reasons for that. But like, it's just such a part of the discipline that like, we don't really have to sit back and be like, well, what should we teach this? Is this important? Because it's like, if you want to play rock guitar, you play the blues scale, you learn the blues scale and you use it for basically all of your solos. Not all of them, but you know, a lot of rock guitar solos are just people noodling on the blues scale. And I will not back down from that. Jack White made an entire career (laughs) off noodling on the blues scale. It's a very good scale. This is not not meant as an insult, but it is also a lot of rock guitar. But anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that like that is a valuable thing to teach. And that is a valuable thing to teach, not as a conceptual broad, like, oh, what does this mean? What is it for? It's just like, it's worth teaching because you need to know it professionally if you want to do the job. And if you want to make the music you want to make, knowing how to use the blues scale is really useful. And so there's this value to practical education that isn't necessarily tied to whether or not it's teaching you an objective, whatever. But the problem is then that it winds up being easiest to frame it like that because that's the quickest way to explain to a student why it matters and why they need to know this thing and then that creates the aesthetic of a conceptual or theoretical education when it's trying to be a practical one and that language the difference in language we use between those two spheres creates i think at least some of this issue where you get the idea that this is just how music works and i think this is the thing that i see a lot in my work i used to see more when i read youtube comments but like you know the phenomenon that i like to call guitar theory which is this thing that you see a lot with guitarists, especially rock guitarists, where they will have these really deep, intricate theoretical ideas about music, but only in regards to their own instrument mm-hmm. and like only in that context. And they just like have no sense that you can apply theory from outside the guitar to what the guitar is doing or apply these ideas on the guitar to something else. Like I've seen like a lot of things where I'm talking about a chord progression and people are just like, well, but no, what you don't understand is that like the reason they played it like this is because of the the guitar voicings. It, like it flows really well. And it's like, yes, that's true. But I, as a listener, am not fingering a guitar yeah and so the question that i'm asking as a theorist is what is the impact of this chord not why did i choose this chord and i think that that's a thing that gets kind of lost when you do because you do get a lot of this sort of pretty deep guitar theory that is really useful if you want to play guitar but then doesn't necessarily get framed as a theoretical or conceptual thing in a way that like or does get framed as a theoretical conceptual model on its own when it is more in an iteration or a subsection of these broader ideas. Yeah, I think something that often comes from this kind of like hyper focus around a certain area of theory is also the idea, and it's very much tied in with kind of 
a lot of what we've been talking about is the idea that something and often it tends to be I feel like this tends itself towards the idea that like more complex equals better. Yeah. There's this thing that sometimes comes out and I don't have any issue with people doing these kinds of things. It's more just how it's presented. Like the idea that, oh, I can do the Coltrane changes at 350 BPM. Like, damn. That's impressive. You know, exactly. I think on YouTube, there's a lot of this kind of pseudo virtuoso stuff where the reaction, and I don't even necessarily think it's always the people putting this out there doing that, but the reaction is that makes you like objectively good instrumentalist or something like that. When in reality, I've heard a lot of people do the Coltrane changes in a lot of ways and not a single one has hit me quite like listening to Coltrane do the Coltrane (laughs) changes. And that's the kind of thing where, I don't know, even kind of looking at guitar, and if we're looking at it from this theoretical framework, you can say, oh, Jimi Hendrix was the greatest guitarist because of, plug for my video, um, <laughs> where I did a theory analysis on that, but because you say, oh, like, look at the way he's able to, like, play polyrhythms on the guitar at the same, like, or I guess at yeah. the same time is implied by polyrhythms. Well, yeah, usually. <laughs> But, you know. Yeah, polyrhythms separately are called rhythms. Sequential polyrhythms, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, he uses these really cool chord voicings. It's like, yes, but just as much of what makes Jimi Hendrix a good guitarist is how he uses the crybaby pedal. Or, to get even more intangible, just how he makes you feel when you play guitar. And I think when we focus on the kind of music school, I think there's a lot of value in that kind of analysis. But I think when we focus on it, and especially in the internet age, I feel like there's this kind of extreme focus on it as kind of higher or deeper than an analysis that says, oh no, like, Little Wing is really good because you can feel him playing his heart out. And there's no framework where you're going to be able to say, like, objectively describe Hendrix playing his heart out. Yeah, you can measure exactly how far out his heart is, you know. Yeah, exactly. What's his (laughs) heart to chest ratio? In this phrase, it's 73% out. Uh (laughs) But I don't think that that means that talking about music in these kind of subjective terms and in metaphor and in any of these is any less valuable or any less valid than talking about it in these kind of music school theoretical frameworks. No, and there's this thing that gets talked about at music schools, or at least at my music school, where like, you know, there's this reputation where, you know, when you go to auditions, like the people running the auditions can just always tell when the person they're auditioning went to music school because they're just they're playing all the notes they're showing you how many scales they know that how fast they can play because i think in that sort of music school environment like there's a lot of good stuff about that community but one thing is sort of because you have so many people with the same goals you wind up almost inherently competing like not necessarily like aggressively like it's not like a fight or anything but i know that like before I went to music school, I did not care about my range, right? Like yeah. My range was my range. It wasn't very big. It was whatever. But like when I was there, like I would often find myself in like things where we were just like, okay, well, let's see who can sing higher. Let's see who can sing lower. And, you know, just like in that was a whole thing. And range became like a big part of the question because for a vocalist, that's a big way to show off your technique, which is sort of an easier thing to measure than your skill and yeah. therefore gets treated as a proxy for it. Range is a great way to talk about this because I think one of the single best singers ever, and I think a lot of people would tell you that Billie Holiday is one of the single best singers ever, and her range is like barely an octave. 
Yeah, and I remember like when I was doing my sophomore jury, we had to like clear these songs with the jury supervisor and a jury is like a big performance thing that you do a couple times through your degree to like showcase your skill. And I would bring these songs to him and these songs that I loved and these songs that I would want to do and he'd listen to it and be like, yeah, the range isn't even over an octave. Like you should find a song that better showcases that, that has a wider range. Like this is like, so it's such a big thing for him. It's like have a wider range and have multiple sections. And it's like, that's not what makes a song good. That's not what makes a singer good. That's not what makes songs enjoyable to listen to, but it's a good way for them to make sure if they give you a diploma, that diploma tells people that they have said that you have certain skills and that's a way for them to ensure that you actually do is yeah. to make you sing in a broader range. And so again, it sort of, you get this thing. Are you familiar with Goodhart's Law? It rings a bell, but I cannot okay. reiterate it. So Goodhart's Law is the idea that when a metric becomes a target, it ceases to be a good metric. Mm. So there's there's definitely a sense to which like singers with a broader range have more expressive options, right? Like yes. you listen to someone like Freddie Mercury and Freddie Mercury could do whatever he wanted. Both musically and just in general, Freddie Mercury could do whatever he wanted. <laughs> just blank check, Freddie Mercury, <laughs> go nuts. But you listen to like someone like Tom Waits and Tom Waits does not have a very large range and he doesn't have a very traditionally great vocal tone either. That's actually something that we should do maybe as a future episode is like questions of like bel canto style vocal quality and like, sound. you know. Oh, I would love that because I would just wax poetic about Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan for an hour. Yeah, I would be right there with you about <laughs> Ian Anderson, but like... Uh, but no, anyway, the point is, like, you get this idea that, like, this is, like, Tom Waits, technically speaking, by any measure of vocal technique, Tom Waits has a bad voice. By any normal standard established metric that, like, music students will use and will learn. But Tom Waits does not have a bad voice. Yeah. I think that's really obvious to anyone who listens to him. And same with, like, Bob Dylan and same with all these things. And so, like, there is a lot of value in extending your range as a vocalist. It gives you more options. It gives you more tools. But having a broader range is not the same as being a better vocalist. Yes. Or, I mean, actually, I don't know. Maybe there's a sense to which I distinguish between being a vocalist and being a singer, where being a vocalist is more about the technique and being a singer is more about actually singing. So in that sense, maybe being a vocalist does require a broad range, but being a singer doesn't. And so because we've made range and because like when you look at guitar, we've made like speed a really important factor. Yeah. Like uh, we look at like drummers, we've made like consistency and like being like right on the beat a really important factor. But like you know, there's a lot of drummers who are sloppy and they sound great. Yeah. Because they're sloppy in ways that are interesting. I'm working on a video on Pink Floyd's Echoes right now, and Echoes is so interesting, and Pink Floyd in general are interesting, because they get called prog rock, Yeah, but that's a whole other discussion, but prog rock is, like, so much of prog rock is doing crazy time signatures, crazy key changes, all of that stuff, like, I'm not entirely sure that, like, David Gilmore and Nick Mason are capable of changing keys and times more than <laughs> once in a song. You know, like, they're not, yeah. in terms of that stuff, like, David Gilmore, in terms of technical ability, like, Steve Howe leaves him in the dust. Yet, David Gilmore, I mean, if you put a gun to my head and ask me the greatest guitar solo of all time, I mean, Comfortably Numb is a pretty good bet. And there's <laughs> nothing about that that is virtuosic or that fits into this kind of like music school analysis of it. That solo is just so great because goddamn, does it just give you the feels? 
that actually reminds me, I did a video on Comfortably Numb and I wanted to talk about the guitar solo because it was so broadly considered good. Yeah. And it's like a lot of people would agree with you that it's the best guitar solo ever. But I like I didn't know much about guitar solos at the time. I still only sort of do like I've never really dived that deep into it. So I reached out to a friend of mine who was a guitarist who I, I knew through music school and was like, hey, would you mind giving me your thoughts on this? Because I feel like I should address it because so many people think it's one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. And he goes and takes looks and comes back and is like, yeah, this is not the greatest guitar solo of all time. He's just playing the blues scale and it's like oh okay yeah not meant to like be like an insult to my friend like i appreciate him giving me his time and i like his insight was really useful he gave me a lot of stuff i could work for him and obviously no one is required to like the guitar solo from comfortably numb but it's just it's interesting to see someone who is very much that sort of like music school style guitarist great guitarist good friend of mine too still and may listen to this episode so i want to be clear if he's listening <laughs> this is not meant as an insult yeah well, and the thing is, I don't necessarily think that music school style analysis is less valid than the no. oh, it makes you feel style analysis. I think both are equally valid and both can be right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, if you asked me best guitar solo, I almost certainly would not say comfortably numb. Yeah. I would probably say My God by Jethro Tull and then hope you didn't notice that was actually a flute. <laughs> I think broadly, one of the big reasons why this is an issue is just broadly most of our frameworks for education are kind of built around as they kind of should be are built around things like math yeah. and science and a lot of those frameworks that's really important and our education system works very very well for those things and then it's also like pretty good for teaching practical things like it can teach you if you go to music school you will learn how to be able to play stuff on your instrument yeah very practically it's a good trade school yeah exactly it's like learning how to like build a bench or whatever yeah but i think that these systems fail when they start to get into the more intangible stuff if you're not taking them as kind of pure objective truth like we talked about in the first half of this episode they can give you a lot of frameworks that you can use to deepen your understanding of this subjective stuff and they often do, but they are just not equipped to teach this kind of education. I think there is some, you know, valid question as to how important that actually is for people who aren't, you know, running podcasts about conceptual music debates, right? Like it's the most important skill anybody yeah. can have. I would agree. <laughs> like just objectively speaking, I ran the numbers. It's the most important skill. But like, I, I think there's like some question of like, you know, again, if you go to school to learn to be a rock guitarist and you learn all of these like amazing and weird scales, and like all this microtonal like stuff, and then you get out there and you're just playing the blues scale, like what of that was actually necessary? And again, this is why I come back to music school primarily as a community more than as a sort of place to receive lessons. I think that that is the place that thing that is hardest to replace about music school yeah is just having that environment where just day in day out you're just wandering these halls and running into people who want to talk to you about music yeah that's that's so hard to find and it's so valuable and in so many of the possible music careers the theoretical stuff isn't super necessary the practical stuff may not be super necessary like what you want to do will affect which of those matter but in all of those cases just being connected to musicians and being connected to people who are passionate about music that 
is I think the most important part. And honestly, like not to get all, you know, mushy or anything, but that's one of the things I love about this podcast. <laughs> it just <Yes>. like <laughs> gives me an excuse to just have weird conversations about music with someone whose opinions about music I respect a lot. Well, thank you. Me. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good bit. <laughs> Do you have any other, any last thoughts on music school no, other than don't go? Yeah, don't go. A lot of music schools are really expensive. Look at your finances before you decide whether to go. Like that's a serious, like honest piece of advice. Definitely don't go to a for-profit university if you can avoid it. Uh, yeah. I also just want to, I said this off the top, but I really want to reiterate that if you love music and want to work in music, there are a thousand ways to work in music that don't involve playing it. And if you want to yeah. play it and want to go to music school, that's great. And you can learn a lot and you can become a really good musician. But don't think that, oh, I love music. Music is my passion. I want to work with music. Don't think that playing music is the only way to work with music. Yeah. People playing music for their profession or playing music for their income is only a fraction of the music industry. There are so many different avenues you can get into the industry and so many different schooling options you have. On the flip side of that, I do want to say like learning to play an instrument is not the only thing you can get from music school either. Like there's the school I went to had like a music business program, a music law program, and going to those sorts of things at a place that is also a music school can be really useful in sort of building connections with the people that you will then be representing later on in your career. Or, you know, if you want to do music journalism, getting to know musicians can be really useful because then you have people you can talk to. Again, like I reached out to my friend. It was like, hey, can you help me with this guitar analysis? I couldn't have done that. But like he could. And so having access to that and having those connections is still really valuable. But again, that's not to say you have to go to music school. I completely agree with Noah's point. If you're applying to music school, if you've listened to this and you're applying to music school and they ask for a letter of intent to say Corey from 12 Tone told me to go. Yeah. Tell them to call me. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll give a reference. <laughs> it's like A plus probably watches my videos. Listen to at least one episode of my podcast. What more could I ask? Exactly. Yeah, well, as always, this was a really great conversation. Thanks for yeah. suggesting the topic. I'm surprised. I sort of just like pulled this out of thin air yesterday and just it worked out really well. I'm really yeah. Hey, don't let them peek behind the curtain. <laughs> if you want to find us, Corey is 12 tone on YouTube. I'm polyphonic on youtube you have to know this by now like how else yeah at this point if you're just like stumbling upon this on spotify or whatever and haven't watched our channels first of all hi yeah you're in for a treat welcome to ghost notes <laughs> yeah i hope you enjoyed the last hour of your life yeah so thank you all so much we will see you in a month bye take care <laughs>